from the Artichoke Music Cafe, and it's a good feeling to say that again. I am sitting across from Paul Ward, the new Artichoke Executive Director and Board Chair. He's been on the job for only a matter of weeks, but he's full of ideas and has experience in both music, he's a pianist, and business with multiple degrees and an excellent track record in running companies. Bob Howard, who just retired from Paul's job, maneuvered Artichoke through the pandemic, and now it's up to Paul to take the next steps. He's on the job. Meet Paul Ward. Well, I have just turned on the flash. The, the flashing red light is no longer flashing. That means we're recording, and um, it means we'll stop talking and start talking. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. Glad you're here too, Tom. You're part of this organization, I tell you. It's just wonderful to be sitting across from somebody now. You know, I mean, I've done a million phoners, you know, but uh, there's nothing like sitting across from somebody. And, and that's why it's called conversations and not, not coffee shop interviews, you know. Uh, good point. And we just talk to each other, yeah. you know what I mean? So how long, how long have you been here officially now? Is it a couple months? Three? Well, you know, I got to take a look at the calendar. There were a couple of months when Bob Howard, who was the, yeah. who was the emeritus um, executive <laughs> director, um, start, and I started talking about taking over, and I went through this due diligence period, taking a look at their financials and the organization mm -hmm. and so on. And then I think the official vote uh, by the board was in June. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. what is that? June, July, and August, August, two and a half months. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and uh, it's great to finally sit down with you. It took us a while to get this happening because of all the stuff intervening. But, yes. Uh, um, yes. And we can go into some of the uh, trials and tribulations. But I think, you know, the, the thing that's so wonderful for me is that the community has welcomed me with open arms. And mm -hmm. I'm very grateful for that because so much this community, uh, how can I put this? Our official name is Artichoke Community Music. Yeah. I make that point all the time because we couldn't do what we do without the community. So for me to come in as the supposed executive director and meet mm -hmm. all the volunteers and all the people, the staff that's here, um, and be welcomed by them is really sort of like them giving me permission to be part of the team. Mm -hmm. um, I don't feel like I'm so much leading as I am trying to... Um, get the community ref to reflect on what the next chapter is going to be and get them mm -hmm. excited about that. Because well, that's leadership. I, I guess it is, sure but it it's is. their energy, right? It's their, I could, couldn't do it without their energy. It's just so oh, yeah. so exciting to be in this yeah, group. Yeah, oh yeah. I, I'm, that's the history of Oregon music news. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to interview you next, and I want to hear about this whole thing. We didn't, we didn't plan it to be nonprofit, and it's not, and it's not an official nonprofit, but there's no profit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what, what was it that attracted you? Well, I, I had been other uh, than being the boss, uh, well, <laughs> being a boss is not, is not necessary. I mean, I, I have a vision of, of making an impact in my life. Mm -hmm. I, I come from, um, a long background of family service and, uh, and that sounds so nice, but there are all kinds of, um, you know, fraught psychological details with that. So oh, yeah. my father and mother always were involved with music and theater. My dad was a professor of music at Randolph-Macon College in Ashland, wow. Virginia for uh -huh. all of his adult life. Also played first chair trombone in the Richmond Symphony. Wow. And played in dance bands mm -hmm. and uh, 
rehearsed and conducted at the Virginia Museum Theater, which was the equity theater in mm -hmm. Richmond, and also mm -hmm. some non-equity theater at um, in Hanover County at the oldest and or most original <laughs> and amazing dinner theater in the mm -hmm. United States called Barksdale Theater, uh -huh. which was housed in Hanover Tavern, which a <laughs> 1700s building, George Washington literally slept there. <laughs> And so did Marquis de Lafayette, and uh -huh. so did Cornwallis. Right? Jeez. I mean, it was like, not it, at the same time, I hope. No. no uh, well, <laughs> that's another story. George is down the hall, <laughs> and Cornwallis is down the other hall. Yeah, that's and, right. So, you know, cue the bad 70s funk music and yeah, turn really. on the blue lights. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, so I grew up with this, the, the music background, but an important thing to understand about my dad is that when he fell in love with my mother, um, the presumption was that he was going to continue in his long family legacy mm -hmm. of being in the Salvation Army. Huh. And my father, who was, uh, I would view him more as a free thinker than almost anything. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that means the person who asks the hard questions always, mm -hmm. right? Goes where the questions need to take you. Um, was confronted with two crises at once. Uh, one was, um, how much does he identify with the Salvation Army, which has a lot of good stuff going for it. They're a service organization. They give, give, right. give, give, give. They're not about profit. Mm -hmm. They are the most uh, economically and fiscally um, successful mm -hmm. and effective service organizations in the United States. And actually, they do great work around the world. Um, but there were a number of issues. On the other hand. <laughs> On the other hand, there are a number of issues that they've had. And my father had to ask himself, is this my place? Yeah. Right? Or do I have another place? And the second thing is, my mother would have to join the Salvation Army if they oh. were going to get married because it has that rule. Oh. So he made the decision to leave uh -huh. and to take on a life of music. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't first built for service. He uh -huh. would never say it that way because it sounds so highfalutin. Yeah. Because he was a you know, hard-drinking, hard-smoking guy until his last dying day, which happened in just a few months ago. Oh. Um, but the service was there, and my aunts and my uncles and my cousins and my grandparents and great-grandparents. It goes all the way back to when the Salvation Army was founded. Wow. The founder of the Salvation Army had a service program that he initiated before the Salvation Army was officially the Salvation Army, mm -hmm. where he would stand outside the gates of prisons, huh. and as the prisoners were released, he'd approach them, and he'd say, we can give you a warm bed, we can give you three square meals, we can give you training for a job. As a part of this, you're gonna get some Bible training. How does that sound for you? And so many of those prisoners took him up on that and that founder was accompanied most of the time by a ward we were there at the, on the ground floor of the salvation army so for dad yeah. to leave was a big deal big and for deal. him to leave yeah. for music and love also is part of the family legacy too because there's so much in my family about music and love yeah so i when you, when you ask what, what is it that attracted me about this organization mm -hmm. How could I not be attracted to an organization that has a stage, <laughs> yeah. that has music, yeah. where people do it for the love? Yeah. Um, and uh, I think this certain free thinking thing comes into this too, because one of the things that I love about I loved about Artichoke was that even though, for example, it didn't do a lot of jazz and it didn't do sort of danceable rock and roll because mm -hmm. it's not a dance facility. Right. 
there's not a kind of music that hasn't been played here. There yeah. isn't a there isn't a population in this town that's not been welcome here. Um, so it just felt right to me. Now the, mm -hmm. the proximate cause of me getting involved is that one of the um, great young drummers here in town, Max Tucker, mm -hmm. approached Christopher Brown, who's the son of Mel Brown. Sure. And Christopher Brown is a, a I consider him a community leader. Oh yeah. Um, he, he's, he's a, a serious cat. He's a serious cat. And he's had a residency at the 1905, one of my favorite clubs in town mm -hmm. ever since I got here five years ago, um, working with some of the best musicians on a regular basis. He's an excellent drummer with a great legacy. Mm -hmm. He and Max were starting a conversation with Bob Howard about setting up a regular jazz jam session. Mm -hmm. And Max, who, uh, I know through family friends, um, I, I've met his mother, who's wonderful, and his and his dad is le legendary in his kindness and open heart. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Max came to me with lots of pedigree that mm -hmm. I that matters to me. So the three of us were in here with Shelley Garrett, who was our booker, mm -hmm. who had just started with Bob to help with the transition. Bob was starting to think about exiting in a serious way, mm -hmm. and Bob really enjoyed the conversation we had the questions that I asked, the points of observations and the differentiation that I wanted to uh, help engender through this mm -hmm. jazz jam. Uh, I didn't want it to be just another jazz jam and, and mm -hmm. Christopher Brown agreed with that and together Christopher and I have crafted something that is um, uh, that we're, we need more sponsors for but mm -hmm. we've been doing it on a fairly regular basis since then. Uh, but Bob... What, what was it that set that jam, what, that sets that jam apart? Okay, I'll, t I'll tell you w w what Christopher and I really laid in on. Mm -hmm. uh, I, when I was at a previous nonprofit, Saramon House, which has just changed its name. Um, to what? Uh, I think that they call it Alberta House now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's over in the Alberta Arts District. Um, I had this idea that I would get the venues in town who do jam sessions to have an artist or two from the jazz legacy mm -hmm. uh, on little tent cards in each of those venues with the Saramon House uh, name on it uh, and a link over to the bios of these people. It might be Billie Holiday and Duke Ellington. It mm -hmm. might be Roy Hargrove and um, Harry Connick Jr. or whatever mm -hmm. it is, right? Mm -hmm. we, we figure out who those people were. Uh, they could be fun. They could be serious. They could have tragic stories. They could have Amazing story, but I wanted the stories. Mm -hmm. I wanted people to come in to any venue in town during Billie Holiday month mm -hmm. and see the Billie Holiday face and to get to the Billie Holiday um, uh, bio and to have the musicians be encouraged any way they want to, to honor Billie Holiday. So that at the end of the month, everybody who loves jazz would be exposed to Billie Holiday's story mm -hmm and all the things that come along with that. Mm. And, and there's a reason for this. One is, I have a philosophy that you can't love what you don't know. Mm. And the more you know about a particular artist, the more you're going to inevitably be open to love for them. You may not end up liking them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But um, I want more love because that love will mm -hmm. get you, you back to that club, yep. will get you back to eating Aaron's great pasta and get mm -hmm. you back to listen to Christopher Brown or whoever, George Colligan, whoever's playing. Mm -hmm. um, 
so it's a loyalty building thing that I and, I and I felt like the nonprofit role in this is to is to create that engagement around the back stories of these musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was another ulterior motive, and I'll bring this back to the to the jam mm-hmm. here in a second. The ul- other ulterior motive is it's a podcast. Okay. <laughs> There's no time, no time limit here. Right, that's great. <laughs> I love that about podcasts. Yeah. Um, so often when I go into a jazz club, and probably this is a common experience, even in other genres, mm-hmm. and you see a couple sitting at a table, one of them is completely enraptured. Mm-hmm. They're listening. They're laughing. They they look dreamy. They're in a they're in an altered state, mm-hmm. and the other one is checking their phone. And uh, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we could find on-ramps mm-hmm. for that other person in the partnership? Yeah. Where they could find a hook that may not have anything to do with whether or not they understand that this person has played the blues scale and then played it up a half step in order to create <laughs> tension. Their partner may know that. Their partner may be <laughs> delighted at that and be fueled for a week by that. Yeah. But they're going to be like, what? What uh-huh. is this? I don't, uh-huh. I don't understand what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, I just thought it would be a great way to create a uh, develop, start developing a common interest and to introduce the possibility that the other person in the couple could develop some love for love for whatever music they are Mm -hmm. through story. Mm -hmm. All right. So what does that have to do with this differentiation for the the jam session here? The musicians that are young and coming up or even those who are adult amateurs or new professionals who are Mm -hmm. getting gigs, but don't have, um, the benefit of having grown up, for example, with jazz, mm-hmm. um, are coming at it in either a piecemeal fashion because everything is available on YouTube, right? So you can listen to yeah. Dinah Washington. Mm-hmm. But who was Dinah Washington, mm-hmm. right? So you can say, hey, I like that version of it. Or you can listen to another version of the same song by someone else. And it's all sort of jammed up. These versions mm-hmm. are jammed up without mm-hmm. any historical context, mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's one detriment to the way a lot of people are getting into jazz music nowadays yeah. context free and and the other one is that most of the great jazz musicians that are legends didn't learn with play along records no they played along with people who played yes and they played with people who were better than them and right. they played with people who were worse than them Mm-hmm. And they played in, in real time mm-hmm. where you had to figure out the feel in the moment. And if oh, the feel yeah. wasn't happened, yeah. there was going to be a conversation. Or maybe <laughs> there wasn't going to be a conversation. You're just going to not get the gig again. Yeah. So it's a little bit of rules of the jungle. But just as importantly, if you walked onto a stage with somebody you respected mm-hmm. um, and it was not your turn to play, and in jazz it is often not your turn to play. Yes. <laughs> then your ears are wide open. There's so much learning that goes on on the stage Mm -hmm. because you're playing with people who aren't exactly like you. Mm. So we're going to get high school students here who are in the 11th grade who are from Cleveland. We have the Cleveland High School just up the road here. Yeah. Um, We have some of their students coming in and they play with people in the 11th grade mm-hmm. or they played with people in the 10th grade and they play with people who are seniors, but they don't play with people who are 20. 
or right. 25 right. or 30 who are better than them, mm-hmm. who will be so much better than potentially that they're going to get a lesson on the stage in 15 minutes mm-hmm. that is worth the entire school year. Right. <laughs> so this whole mentorship dimension mm-hmm. is something that is missing in the jam sessions nowadays. You often get on the stage, but you're on for a song or two and then you're off and there aren't necessarily opportunities for you to be focused on these issues of feel and repertoire and historical context for how to approach a song and who wrote the song and so on. So what Christopher and I said is let's not make this a free-for-all where you just come in and freak people out with the one song you've been rehearsing Mm -hmm. for a month um, and you can play really well, but you know, someone calls giant steps and you can't do it. Or someone calls, (laughs) have you met Miss Jones? And you've never heard of that song. Right. right? Um, We wanted to build up, set lists that give you a well-rounded view of the kinds of songs you should know as a professional, give you a well-rounded view of how to approach them, of who wrote them, Mm -hmm. of who played them well, Mm -hmm. how to approach it in new ways, um, and be encouraging without being patronizing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And Christopher, you know, loves this idea because in so many ways that's how he came up as the son of Mel Brown. Sure. Uh, He tells this story all the time that when he was growing up, the great jazz musicians in town were always over at his house or he was always hanging out with them and he was uncle this or aunt that. And that's how Mel came up. Uh, Exactly. Exactly. Cleve Williams and and, uh, um, um, uh, Sweet Baby James Benton and all those guys. Those are names I don't know, but I appreciate oh, yeah. you hearing about them now. Oh, and I got to yeah. go back to this podcast. Oh, yeah. I can write oh, those yeah. down like I'm writing, <laughs> writing everything down. But, but, but you see this is missing in most jam sessions nowadays because the problem that jam sessions are, tr- are trying to solve from a commercial standpoint mm-hmm. are we have a Monday night. We'd like to have more diners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and we don't have a lot of money to pay mm-hmm. for musicians on a Monday night. Um, so let's just open it up to a jam session and see if we can get 20 or 30 people to come mm-hmm. in and mm-hmm. we can turn some food and, and maintain our brand as a jazz club or whatever that is. It, yeah. it solves a business problem, but it doesn't necessarily develop the next generation of jazz players. Yeah, yeah. And it all comes down to giving these students and to some extent the audience members mm-hmm. more things to hook onto, more things they can understand and know so that they can love the music more. And, and we, I, I, my own key performance indicator on this is if people leave um, having developed an insatiable curiosity about mm-hmm. a piece of the music that they didn't have when they walked in, then mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. succeeded. I'm delivering insatiable curiosity because yeah. that's, that's the Reese's piece yeah. that, that pulls people from the shed of ignorance into the household of, um, right. of love. Do you, get up in the ba- do you get up on the bandstand? I have not yet, and that, I don't think it's my role to do that, but I am thinking about, in, you know, Marion McPartland's uh, piano jazz sure. thing. I'm thinking about doing something like that um, in a different context. I, I would love to play on the stage, but I think my primary role is to be an enabler of other people's talent. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean... You got to once in a while. Yeah, but I got to do it in the right context. You get to so, play with Chris... You get to play with, you know, with, Christopher, with Christopher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, well, I mean, I do. That's play. like that's like uh, Peter Damon and at the Blues Festival. Right. He always gets to, he always picks some band or two or three that he can sit in with. <laughs> well, I will tell you, uh, I've had the good luck of doing gigs with some of the better players in town, mm-hmm. and uh, 
it has served me in the way that I'm hoping to serve other people. Mm-hmm. You know. Hey, I know you been. played with uh, with uh, Shelly uh, on Thursday at the Underground. How was it? Well, it was great. I just knocked the microphone. Well, it was okay. great. Yeah. And uh, the first time playing Shelly's book, I've seen her perform many times. So yeah. A lot of the tunes were familiar, yeah. and uh, I was nervous because she. Sure. I mean, she she's played with. Uh, let's see. George Mitchell, Clay oh, yeah. Iverson, yep. uh, Randy Porter. I mean, right. oh, yeah. it's, it's the A-list of piano players. In town. And her own husband. Oh, and Chance. <laughs> Chance is the tone, tone meister. Uh, yeah. And uh, his precision and professionalism is, I think, uh, unbeaten in this town. He's I know. So I met him the first time about 15 or 16, 18 years ago. Um, the Mission Theater was showing um, Trailblazers games live. <laughs> oh, cool! That's a, okay. That's good. And you know, it didn't it didn't work out, but it was okay. And 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 I, he sat. He was sitting next to me. I didn't know him, and that's the first time I met him. We 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 started talking and stuff. He was he was a kid, you know. Well, when he's sixty, he's gonna look like a kid. I know. He he's got <laughs> he's got the blessing of eternal youth. I don't know how he does yeah, it. Yeah, it's some, some cream he's using. On I'm gonna see if we can get a chance and Shelly in here when 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 we. And I th- and thank you very much. For offering uh, the cafe for uh, OMN's thirteenth thirteenth anniversary show. Oh, it's going to be a thrill! I'm just so pleased. I, I'm, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to ask uh, Chance and Shelly if they'd play. Oh, we I, go way back. That's great. Uh, the two of us, because uh, when she was pregnant, and I mean out to here pregnant, <laughs> they had a benefit uh, at at the Secret Society, which is of course no longer with us. Unfortunately, that was a great venue, great venue, and. Um, and they asked me to MC it, and it was great. It was, we just had so much fun. That is great. Yeah. I love them so much. And uh, so you asked how the gig went. I was nervous. Yes. Uh, uh, I asked to get her. Really? Book. Yeah, I was nervous. Wow. Uh, well, good. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so Shelley is distinguished by a couple of things. First, she can sing anything, mm-hmm. uh, any almost any style, and um, and so her book is filled with all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. You've got the Ray Charles arrangement of Imagine. You've sure. got um, uh, a, a lot of R&B standards. Mm-hmm. You've got a, uh, some, there's a, a, a pop re- influence song from a new Broadway show really? called Hades Town, huh? which we did. So she's got a lot of stuff. And I, I love all kinds of genres. I've played almost every genre. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually didn't play piano for 20 years as I was developing developing my business career. Wow, 20 so, years. I mean, you, you had a piano at home, though, didn't you? Yeah, but I didn't play it very often. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was a, the biggest mistake of my life. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but now that I came Well, to, if that's your biggest mistake, that's not too bad. <laughs> it, I weep on a regular basis. Um, but now that I've been back in town, I, I, I've started to take it more seriously. I give, mm-hmm. give it more time. I have... I've had two of the best teachers that you could ever have mm-hmm. um, for completely different reasons. They have different styles. Um, one of them is Greg Goebel, and the other is ah. George Colligan. Yeah. Um, both wonderful And they people. are completely different. Completely different yeah. in their playing, but also in their teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very yin and yang. I get two different uh, angles on the spotlights on music from mm-hmm. each of those guys, mm-hmm. and I can't say enough about them as human beings and as musicians. And I, I mentioned this in this context because I think of myself as coming back to the music anew mm-hmm. with 20 years of listening experience, mm-hmm. which means that my standards are higher and my ability to execute has been diminished by that 20-year break. And so I'm constantly facing a question, the issue that so many musicians face mm-hmm. in so many different contexts, and that is the worthiness question. Oh. Right? Am I worth people 
Yeah. Am I good enough? Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons that musicians are not particularly thrilled about marketing themselves for a gig. Right. Because what do you do if you send out something to your list? Oh, do I have a list? I should have had a list. Yeah. I'm a failure. Right. Oh, I have a list. Let me send out mm-hmm. something to all these people and mm-hmm. no one will show up. Well, mm-hmm. then that will be a sign that I'm not any good. Right. So if you don't market, you never get the answer to the question, are you good enough? Right. But it always leaves it in the back of your head. Well, so I'm in that sort of am I good enough kind of thing. Uh-huh. And, you know, in a way, I, I knew I was good enough because I've done a lot of playing with some really good people in town. Mm-hmm. And it's turned out very well. I've been very lucky. Anandi, I've uh, worked with her several times. Nice. And, uh, um, one of the busiest singers in town who's just uh, exploded onto the scene is Billy Edson. She's oh, yeah. not just doing singing, but she's also... Uh, in a very entrepreneurial way, helping to uh, make certain venues thrive, and they are under mm. her tutelage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had some good opportunities there to get some regular work. But I was nervous, in part, uh, not just for musical reasons, but because Shelley and and I got connected as the as the um, pandemic hit. Her oh. her new album. Yeah had just been released, The Way We Love. What a great album. So beautifully recorded. Yes. And you're, you're hearing not just sh- the beauty of Shelley on this and all the wonderful Bob musicians. Stark do that? Bob Stark mastered it. Bob, as soon as Bob recovers from his pneumonia, he's going to be in here again because I had him on here before. Yeah, and Bob and I have something we're, we're brewing in the background. Nice. Mm. nice. Um, uh, but you're also hearing in that Chance Hayden's production taste. Yeah. So the, the clarity yeah. and balance on that album are, is genuinely a product of, the, of both Chance and Shelley. Yeah. So Shelley and I got close because that album came out, and I wanted to do everything I could. And I was working with uh, Billy Edson at, the, at that time uh, to help out because she had just had her debut at Wilfs um, to see how we could promote her CD during the pandemic. She couldn't tour. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we had a whole series of Zoom calls to figure out how are we going to respond to this music and business problem during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got to be close friends and uh, you know, there's almost not a topic that we haven't covered mm-hmm. or a m- musical challenge that we haven't uh, wanted to face um, in one way or the other, either through advice or through help. I've done a lot of, of her spoken word recording in my own studio. Mm. She's a beautiful writer mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I've done some compositions for that too. So we got really close and now I had a chance to do a gig with her for three hours. Wow. And I feel like the stakes were high from a, from an interpersonal standpoint. Mm-hmm. It went, uh, went very well. I was very pleased and, uh, and I think she was pleased too. We had a really good time. Mm-hmm. That was I, on a fairly new venue, right? Yeah, they've been around about a year, just a little over a yeah, year. Yeah. In fact, Billy Edson and I uh, opened it together mm-hmm. um, about a year ago as a with a very heavily themed speakeasy kind of thing with mm-hmm. you know flapper dresses. And, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and and they have an interesting model. It they one of the things that's really interesting about the underground is that they're not bashful about going upscale, even in Clackamas County, which uh-huh. is very much a casual county as far as uh, i can tell. absolutely i'm new to portland so people in clackamas may be sending me emails saying they're not <laughs> casual but i suspect most of them will send those emails you know wearing plaid and oh yeah tennis shoes. Oh, yeah. um Lum- lumber sexual is what we call it here <laughs> i love that <laughs> <laughs> which by the way i think my wife has the theory right i have a, a just a, 
my wife is from Portland. She went to Grant High School and uh, went to PSU and uh-huh. was uh, at the Statesman Journal for for a good time as a, uh-huh. as a reporter. Yeah. Um, before she went to the AP, but uh, she has this theory that uh, Portland's breakfast culture mm-hmm. is a lumberjack culture. Oh yeah. Right. You got to oh, yeah. get your carbs in oh, yeah. before oh, you go yeah. out and knock down some trees. It's funny. I moved here in '97, and I moved here to be with a woman who was here, who was from Portland. And so I immediately started writing for the Oregonian, and I found this story about a, a car dealership who, who had a $10 car. Just come out to the dealership, and, and we have a $10 car for you. So I said, well, I, you know, and I was broke. I came here with 50 bucks in my pocket. So that's four, that's five, and, five cars. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so the, both of us went out, to, went out to this car dealership out in uh, Milwaukee, and and the thing was, you had to line up in front of the gate. Then they open the gate, and everybody has to run and go all all around the the lot and find the ten dollar car, right? So I found one, and and by that time I had told the people at the, at, at the dealership that I was gonna I was writing about this for the Oregonian, and the car wouldn't drive off the lot. It wouldn't it wouldn't go anywhere. So they said, well, come back tomorrow. We'll have something for you. So the two of us went back the next day, and they gave me a, an old Ford 150 pickup. Three on the tree, all that, which is not my style. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I turned to her, and I go, would you ride around with me in that? And she goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was my first introduction to lumber sexual. <laughs> That is so funny. And I wrote the story. <laughs> I got to look it up yeah. now. Yeah. And I, and you know, I think one of the things that's really uh, amazing to me about Portland is that the sort of built in casualness is mm-hmm. almost, almost policed, you know, it's almost like, Oh yeah. You walk into a place with a, you know, you and I are from the East coast, right? Yeah. Uh, you can walk around in jeans and a button down shirt and a sport coat and a pair of penny loafers or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And everyone feels like you're, Casual because you got the jeans on, right? right? You right. you dress up like that here, and they think first you're from not from right around here. And you're overdressed. And second, you are seriously yes. overdressed. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the I mentioned this because one of the things about the underground is the musicians have to wear suits, really, and the and the and the women have to wear dresses. Wow, have to have to interesting. Have to. And um, what a sport coat work? Nope, a s- actual suit. I think that's I think that's right. I can no, understand. I, I, t- I take it back. No, I think I have seen sport coats. But are, are ties required? Ties required. Woo! <laughs> I know. Where? I mean, maybe people come into the underground to for the great music, or maybe they come in uh-huh. to see what it actually looks like to be dressed <laughs> up like a zoo, <laughs> like you're going to a zoo. But uh, the music they put out there is great. They they get top line acts and. Uh-huh. I sort of have this feeling that it uh, helps address this worthiness question because when you go uh-huh. in and you uh-huh. dress up and you play good music and and the sound system is good there, I had a small part to play in that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you sound good, you look good, you play good, the charts are good, the audience is appreciative, and they're paying mm-hmm. a lot for a stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're also getting a huge experience, and people come back on a regular basis. So it's an odd little location for a jazz club. Yeah. But it's doing very, very well, and, and it's not limited by 
forcing the musicians to dress up and, and look good and smell Funny. good, nor well, by the stakes. Well, let me ask you, you, you know, you, you, you walk into, into Artichoke, which is a, an iconic institution. It's an institution. It absolutely is. It hasn't, you know, it's had its, up, it's, had its ups and downs. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, when I first got here, I mean, it was, you know, it was one of the great places because you, what you'd walk as, when it was up on Hawthorne. You'd walk in and there would be Kate and Steve and, and uh, running the place and, and there was so much love in the building and, and everybody was, and there was always somebody playing an instrument, you know, even if they were there just to try out something, right? And um, uh, so uh, you must have, it, it must be uh, a challenge to maintain that level of, of, of community involvement and the, the reputation, and then to put your own stamp on it. Because obviously, and I, I agree with, the, with this, and, and Bob agreed with this, that there's got to be a, a little more diversity in the music. And so, so how, do you, how, you know, how, did, how did you approach that, or how are you approaching that? Uh, it's, it's a good question. First, I'm really respectful of, of the legacy. And yeah. uh, I think it's important to understand sort of an organizing principle that comes from how it was founded. The people who founded this organization, uh, uh, as I understand the story, <coughs> sometime in the 60s, thank God for the 60s in mm. so many ways. Um, I'm, I'm saying this to all you people who may have been born after the 60s. You know, you may have been born in the polyester decade or <laughs> the or the khaki decade, but no, the 60s, so much good stuff happened. I was the underground, I was the, the publisher of the underground paper in Baltimore. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, the stories in Baltimore. Um, the story, as I understand it, is that the two founders were mm -hmm. friends or lovers, uh, decided to go to Europe. Mm -hmm. The sequence, I understand, is that they, when they got to Europe, they bought a VW bus. And, Naturally. <laughs> and they traveled around and they yeah. got introduced to all kinds of music there from and a lot of people who think about Europe, think about, you know, France and Spain and mm -hmm. so on as being, you know, this a lot of Spanish people in Spain, a lot of French, you know, continental people in France. But mm -hmm. actually, they are incredibly diverse. They have all kinds mm -hmm. of music, all kinds of food uh, coming from basically their imperial days so all the french colonies you know um you can't do europe in the 60s unless you are going to be uh exposed to music of all kinds mm. and they came back to portland and really missed that yeah and they said we need a place that does world music mm -hmm. and so they and 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 other kinds of music, folk music of all kinds, and mm -hmm. so on. So they really brought a sensibility that was both the sort of what what people think of as traditional artichoke stuff, which is acoustic, bluegrass, mm -hmm. country, mm -hmm. um, singer-songwriter, yes. right? Uh, but they also, from the very beginning, were looking at this as a a place to elevate Portland around new styles of music, regardless of where they come come from and uh and to make it a place of discovery of the world mm. now what's what's interesting is that we i think it sort of got away from that a little bit um and what i would like to do is to reintroduce the world 
to Portland through Artichoke's lens, mm -hmm. which means that, yes, we're a venue, yes, we're a store, yes, we're a school, mm -hmm. but we have to stand for something that unifies all those things around a bigger principle, and that is to um, support musicians in their cre creativity and their business mm -hmm. so that they are exposed to the world and get, gets the world to love them. Um, so it's like bringing Portland to the world is the way I think about it because the world came to Portland with the founders and mm -hmm. now it's time for us to give back. So that's sort of the arc I'm, I'm seeing with it. And the beautiful thing about it is I don't have to throw anything away because the people yeah. who come in here and do beautiful music or do spoken word or do singer songwriter, creative stuff, mm -hmm. the people who teach how, how to do loops and all, everything that represents the talent in this town mm -hmm. can be captured. And then the question is how do we create opportunities to get this around the world and mm -hmm. across the United States. And it sounds aspirational, but I also think it's necessary. And I'll tell you why very simply. Um, Bob liked me because I think like a businessman. Mm. And I wouldn't mind talking about my business background. Oh, yeah. We're, we're getting there. But uh, the, the key thing is for artichoke and what it represents to be sustainable, um, it needs to diver diversify where it gets its money from. It needs to increase mm. the amount of money it, that it gets. Mm -hmm. And it's been a struggle ever since it was founded. So the question is, it's a very simple question. Is there a market for what we do here? Mm -hmm. And where is that market? Mm -hmm. And my answer to the first question is absolutely there's a market for this. Mm -hmm. Think of the talent and the genius we have here. Think of the, the, of the ways we can generate love for the music that mm -hmm. absolutely can do that. But where is that market? The market is, as we learned during COVID, anywhere there's an internet connection. Yep. And this is one of the things I brought from my previous nonprofit experience is that engaging with people uh, in ways that are compatible with their expectations for digital media consumption is a, a critical thing to be thinking about. It isn't a nice to have anymore. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to take our outreach to the world, um, the way to do it at scale is through digital content mm -hmm. and uh and that's the sort of technical side of it but the way i think about it really is how can we tell human stories and have a little bit of portland slash artichoke gloss on it mm -hmm. so people mm -hmm. see mary flower mm -hmm. a great guitar player and a good singer i love mary right she's i mean she's a legend yeah. right i want them to see her i want them to be entertained by her and i want them at the end of it to say where ask the question where can i get more like this and have mm -hmm. it be obvious that they need to come to Artichoke for this, which means that we can be a platform for the city of Portland. We can mm -hmm. be a platform for any venue in town that has digital content mm -hmm. that doesn't want to set up all the business side of this, right? Yeah. Which is part of the reason why I don't see our venue as a venue. I see ours as a venue for venues, Yes. right? I want to bring in all the venue operators in here, mm -hmm. in here and say, why, why are you a venue operator? Why is this passionate for you? Why mm -hmm. do you risk this? Mm -hmm. What's in it for you? Who, who is your best customer? What kind of music do you have? So that, every, so that there's a piece that they can get out to this community mm -hmm. to say the 1905 is, is fantastic because Mm -hmm. and get that piece into the hands of people who otherwise would come into 1905 and look at their phones all, right. all night. I want them right. to come in and say, I'm in a special place in the 1905. 
name name the club in town name the genre in town i want mm -hmm. to elevate every single one mm -hmm. of those mm -hmm. so that they all know that their efforts make a difference for musicians mm -hmm. and they can get aligned with what we're trying to do i'm hoping well you you and i are on the same page as far as that goes we're going to have to work that work that out too because <laughs> <laughs> we've had a lot of uh we've had a lot of club owners on the podcast i, I mean I've, i'm tyrone hendricks is coming in next week that's fantastic and he's got a piece of the alberta street pub right uh, besides being a great drummer and uh so we just have to we just have to Let's coordinate. Well, the thing is, I, I'm, I have to do the same thing with our the other podcast on Oregon Music News, which is Marty's Music Kitchen. Okay. You know the the uh, where she goes out and and and, and cooks with uh, musicians who cook. Uh, and I mean, that, and that's been that we've had we've we've been running those for three years now, and been very successfully. And she's terrific. And. Um, but, uh, but, we, and we've got to watch out that we're not stepping on each other's toes because, you know, like mines, you know, uh, and, uh, so I promise I'll, I will try not to step on your toes. If you promise <laughs> not to step on my toes. <laughs> well, the, uh, I, I'm, I'm about the win-win and the win-win is not about competition. It's about yeah. complementarity. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I'm just kidding. Sort of. Okay, so um, none of this would be possible, though, mm -hmm. if you didn't know your way around business. Yeah, although I got to say, you know, running a business on a day-to-day -day basis, the last time I did this was when I was running a, um, a partnership on the East Coast that was looking into investing in substantial amounts of money into uh, African power and pharmaceuticals and, mm -hmm. and restaurants even uh, with new models uh, mm -hmm. so that the restaurant risk would go down that that was that was one thing but running an operation like this it really is three businesses and oh, on, yeah. right and as soon as bob handed off the keys to me uh he did the right thing and, and hung out with his grandkids um <laughs> but as soon as he's done with you know with that i don't know when that's going to be um he's gonna come back and help me out which is going to be good, good because he has a lot of deep experience in business himself yeah but one of the things i think you know, he liked about me was that I have a business mindset. Just the fact that I said I need to do some due diligence. That's just that phrase indicates yes. that I have a point of view. And mm -hmm. um, I think there are several aspects of my business. Well, first, let me just if you were to take a look at my LinkedIn page, you would see sort of the external um, mm -hmm. accomplishments. Um, I've done a lot of marketing strategy uh, mm -hmm. for many years. I was a. Uh, uh, in-demand consultant for customer experience management globally. They did mm -hmm. trainings in Shanghai and Singapore and Dubai and um, um, Kuala Lumpur and Singapore and Paris and London, all mm -hmm. around customer experience management and for some of the global 200 companies. Mm -hmm. So that's in my background. Um, and then uh, I did a lot of multi-channel strategy mm -hmm. work and ended up um, asking myself where do I want to be when I retire I didn't think of Portland <laughs> but I have a passion for France ah. I'm a huge Francophile mm -hmm. and um, and there are reasons for this that go back to uh, neighbors of mine when I was growing up um, the, the father was the art history 
well, art, he did everything, art, history, art studio, mm-hmm. art appreciation at Randolph-Macon College where my dad was, was teaching. Mm-hmm. He took his family to France for a year. Wow. Including, you know, taking his kids who were, you know, schoolmates of mine. Mm-hmm. And um, it seemed romantic and nice to me, even as a nine-year-old. <laughs> when they came back, I saw in them uh, a change. Yeah. They now were of the world, not just of the small town that I, I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And they showed me pictures and textbooks, and they spoke French. And mm. um, it was sort of my first opening to what it really is like to be um, a part of another place, mm-hmm. part of a bigger point of view. And there, there was at nine years old getting this, and just really... Wow. It, it, anyway, so uh, where did I want to be when I retired? You know, my fantasy was to be with my wife, Angela, in uh-huh. the south of France yeah. in a place that had a perfectly tuned piano and <laughs> big windows I could open up and play whenever I wanted. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, have the weather perfect and all that kind of you know, fake stuff, right? Yeah. That's not, r- not real. But there was so much in that that was resonant with me. I said, well, how, how can I retire in France unless I work in France or have the ability to be more familiar with France? So maybe I should get my MBA in France. So I uh, checked out the, the schools that were there. And the number one business school in France is one of the, um, it, it has an excellent reputation. It's called the Haute Etude Commerciale, or mm-hmm. HEC, as mm-hmm. they say, or HEC if you're, if you're an American. Mm-hmm. And I went to another website to fill out the application, see if we get an interview. And in the application, among many other things, they asked for your birth date and year. And uh, I was born in 1959. So I go to fill in the month, or it actually goes day, then month, then year in Europe. They do it in that order. Mm -hmm. And I go to the year pull-down menu, and it goes to 1960. Hmm. It wouldn't even allow me to apply because I was six months too old. So I called up the guy. uh, God, what was his name? I ended up meeting him. He's a super Mm -hmm. nice guy, an American who was in admissions. And uh, he chatted with me and said, tell me about your background. And he was impressed. And he said, you know, you really could probably be teaching here. (laughs) I said, that's very nice of you to say, but I still have a lot to learn. And and I said, well, you know, I just love the way your program works, how it's customizable, how you get internships with major uh, continental companies. It's all wonderful. So uh, Angela and I went to uh, an MBA business fair in D.C., in the building museum. I don't know if you've ever been to the building museum. It's mm-hmm. one of the most gorgeous buildings in, in DC. Mm-hmm. And I go over to the, to the HEC, I should say table, wonderful woman there. Um, took me through the program some more. And she said, you know, mm-hmm. maybe we could work something out, but mm-hmm. I don't know. And then Angela's tugging on my, on my sleeve. And she said, you got to check this guy out over here. Right next to the Ashase table was <laughs> a lone person. <laughs> um, Ken Blakeman is his name, mm-hmm. who was running admissions for an MBA program for executives um, who wanted global experience. Mm-hmm. It's a new program, and tr- uh, it's called Trium, T-R-I-U-M. And uh, I should say it was one of the three schools that put it together. It was a an exec- global executive MBA program, one of the first of its kind, that was done to provide an accredited MBA that would also provide you an MBA from the sister schools that put it together. And those mm-hmm. sister schools were mm-hmm. Asha which would be great. It's like oh, yeah. getting my meal ticket punch for credibility in yeah. France. I have an MBA yeah. from Asha and that, yeah. you know, in, in France, that means a lot, yeah. right? But the other two schools were NYU Stern, 
mm-hmm. and the London School of Economics. Wow. So I ended up with essentially uh, degrees from all four schools through an 18-month program. And I went to a, an undergraduate school that was nightmarishly difficult. Huh. Uh, Davidson College in North Carolina. Uh-huh. This was harder than Davidson. Wow. And we had some of the best teachers at each of the schools teaching us. So mm-hmm. the standards were high. The material was difficult. And, and the problem set that we were trying to solve was really challenging, too. You really had to think through what it means to manage across borders, do it ethically across different ethical regimes. You can't get out of that without being a better human being and being able to see around corners better. Mm-hmm. So all of this left me with a level of business awareness that was deeply rooted in innovation and humanity mm-hmm. and also left me with nightmares. <laughs> you know, I haven't done my homework, yeah. right? Or yeah. did I actually graduate? All those things you wake <laughs> up in the middle of the night um, and, 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 and think of. But I, I made some tremendous friends as well. And because I got that degree program, it allowed me to get into some of the, to explore some of the investment activity that I mm-hmm. did uh, or act, um, partnerships that I put together. And um, then a confluence of things led Angela and me to come to Portland uh, related to her, her mother's health. And, mm-hmm. and and I had a serious fall in a Whole Foods in wow. Silver Spring um, and ha- got a MTBI, mild traumatic brain injury, mm. which kept me sort of dazed and confused for a couple of months. And then, and um, you know, I'm largely restored from that, but um, it was one of those moments where I returned to the question, where do I want to retire? What do I want yeah. to be doing? Yeah. It's very much a um, um, centering time for mm-hmm. me. And when I came to Portland, one of the things that I, I did is I took some time off. Angela encouraged me to do that. She has an mm-hmm. excellent job and mm-hmm. gave me some flexibility. What to, did she do? Uh, uh, very proud to say that after her very successful journalism career, she mm-hmm. picked up the role of a writer-editor at an organization that um, works with the U.S. Agency for International Development mm-hmm. to make things better for people in the world. I mean, this Great. is you know, figuratively building bridges to markets, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, getting drugs to people at low or zero cost mm-hmm. where drugs can't normally be distributed. Yeah. Um, where uh, sort of rule of law reform stuff in mm-hmm. different countries and other kinds of business development things and um, trying to get uh, converted illegal drug economies to legal mining economies, mm. right? All kinds of things that make a difference for people in the world. Her, mm-hmm. her company is one of the top contractors for it, and uh-huh. she is so good at marshalling these um, project plans through the experts that put them together and create something that's coherent and readable, strategic, measurable, all those kinds of things. So she's fantastic at what she does, and uh, uh, hopefully she'll be helping us out here at, at Artichoke with some uh-huh. of the grant stuff. She's, yeah. She did, did that very successfully at Saramount House when she mm-hmm. joined the board there for a period of time. Um, so very proud of her. She, she said, take your time, find your way. Um, so I it instantly got a feel for how Portland is a softer place to land than, yeah. than being in D.C., which is pretty. Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> 
um, what's the word? High octane, I guess. Yes. Um, and uh, I got a brunch gig at uh, a restaurant that's now closed and uh, <laughs> started playing with a, an old friend of mine. Actually, was a bass player on the East Coast, a guy named Ken Ano, super mm-hmm. guy, a wonderful bass player. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't have asked for a softer landing with him. And started working with Ron Ron Steen um, mm-hmm. at first at his jams, and then I got in some gigs with him, and uh, that was wonderful. Got introduced around town that way, so I started doing more music. Also, did I helped uh, do uh, marketing for uh, a company called Eurocast Cookware, which mm-hmm. is a a um, uh, the product comes out of Belgium, and mm. uh, it's a, a culinary line, mm-hmm. and. Uh, did a lot of video work for them. I have some video production experience from my early days and audio production as well. Mm-hmm. And that was and website stuff. So it was stuff that I could do and enjoy. And so it was really nice. But when I when I met Saramon House, I used to be on the board of the Smithsonian. Here, let me throw that in as a mm-hmm. as a as a random fact. Um, but when, when I met up with Saramon House, they were. They were a humanities-oriented nonprofit, and they asked me to join the board, which I was very humbled by. Mm-hmm. Um, really talented board. Uh, chairman, um, head of marketing of t- at Tillamook. Mm-hmm. Um, the CFO, I mean, the treasurer was the CFO for Yum Brands, mm. which is one of the big uh, mm-hmm. PepsiCo. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, companies. Uh, out of London, and uh, a great attorney here in town who's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Great board. Joined the board, mm-hmm. and COVID hit. Yeah. Um, so we people couldn't get together. So uh, and at some point, Billy Edson uh, joined the board with me, and the two of us said, we've got to pivot. we got to help musicians pivot. So we started doing a series called Duos. Uh, mm-hmm. My view on it was, you can't have a big band playing with each other and our building was way too reverberant it's a converted church oh right mm-hmm. um <coughs> way too reverberant for a big group so why don't we just sort of make this a win-win mm-hmm. you know, like i'm always mm-hmm. believing in and we'll have two people come in and perform we'll mm-hmm. get a streaming company we got mm-hmm. left door streaming they oh were, yeah they worked with us on price and they were right. they got a, a piece of the money that came in yeah they've been on the podcast that i love them <laughs> and i was going to wear uh, the uh, the june bugs t-shirt uh um uh, moses barrett's uh, band mm-hmm. is uh, the june bugs oh yeah and you should check out the june bugs yeah. i'm just saying they're yeah. really good uh, moses was on the podcast yeah i love <laughs> moses he's yeah. he's, he's a brother from another mother i tell yeah. you yeah um and his audio guy jordan uh mm-hmm. excuse me his uh, i guess his sort of lighting and video and audio he does everything um it's just one of the nicest people i've ever met mm. um anyway they were they were doing the uh uh live stream and we had marilyn keller and, and Bryn roberts we had george colligan and noah simpson mm-hmm. we i mean the, the duos were off the hook great mm-hmm. and uh we had uh, greg goble and john stoll and i worked with them on some creative marketing things right. that really boosted their mm-hmm. their revenues on it and um sort of the takeaway for me from a business standpoint is was that if you're going to continue to engage audiences the digital platform is important yep um that artists don't know how to do that, and they don't, nec- most of them, 
and they don't know how to do the marketing to get the live stream revenues up. And so there's a, there's a role for a nonprofit in doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably is a role for a for-profit doing this, but most musicians can't afford that. So this is, this was sort of the um, kernel that was planted in my mind. When, mm-hmm. I, when I saw Artichoke and I saw they have a stage, mm-hmm. they have great lights, they have great sound, they have an yep. Emmy award-winning sound guy, Gary Furlong. Gary is a prince. Uh, he is a prince. He really he, he is. He is a prince, and he's when dead. I when I had my 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 surgery in January, he was one of the people who stepped up to help me. Is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. He he uh, he is uncomfortable with thanks. I know. He just shows up and does his stuff. I know. We uh, have, we have a lot of fun because we're all world TV pros. Right. I mean, both of yeah. you have a long history in broadcast television yeah. and yeah. production. You know what the quality mark is, and you right. know how to get stuff done. Yeah. Yeah, and we th- we also think it's fun, because <laughs> it is. I, and I want this to be super fun for everybody who's here. And yeah. uh, Gary and I are already starting to brainstorm things like new camera systems and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. production templates for all the video yeah. stuff we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's helping to identify uh, new folks who can essentially be the substitute Gary mm-hmm. when he's not here. Mm-hmm. So we can do more production in this room. I mean, we're sit- you and I are sitting in this cafe, using it for what it should be used for when, yeah. it's, when there's not a show. Right. Right. Yeah. And and uh, um, before Bob left, we had, we talked, and you know, I'm not quite ready to go for this, but uh, we want to do some more video episodes of this podcast because right. we had fun. We had right. we had a good time. Well, let's figure it out. I'm, yeah. I'm here for you, man. Yeah, we'll figure it yeah. out. <laughs> um, so. Uh, you know, the, the Saramon House experience mm-hmm. uh, included a series of regular Zoom calls, which I'm going to recommend here, mm-hmm. with people who had things to say mm-hmm. and to share, it, whether it was commiseration during COVID or inspiration during COVID. So uh, I'll just give you one example. Is I, I did a Zoom call with Nonprofit leaders from LA, mm-hmm. New York, um, artists, mm-hmm. um, technology people, uh, a tap dancer who recently was honored by being appearing was one of I think the one one of six tap dancers mm-hmm. on a U.S. stamp. Um, mm. He's a improvising tap dancer, mm-hmm. right? Um, all these people are were working in an environment that was impossible to work in. Yeah. And my question was, what do we do now, right? Well, how are we responding? What's working? Mm-hmm. And I'll give you one example. Kitty Swink, who was uh, at the time running um, a theater company, uh, a well-known one and um, an excellent one in L.A., said that one of their pivots was to do essentially radio broadcast of plays. Mm-hmm. And after the radio broadcast was done, they would have one of the actors walk around mm-hmm. Los Angeles and do a, essentially a, a mini tour mm. of a neighborhood, all in words. So mm-hmm. you had to mm-hmm. paint with words kind of thing. Yep. It, it proved to be incredibly engaging and successful. And this, got, this kind of thing kept coming up. This kind of, okay, here's what I'm doing that I can do during COVID to continue to engage people. Mm-hmm. And basically what I did was I just called everyone up and said talk right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is community building 
Yep. This is community sharing. This is where it's not just, hey, let me tell you my story, but here, this is what I'm doing. Can it help you? Can I yeah. get you to rethink the way you're doing things? Mm -hmm. And the sort of a common theme is that what's often getting in our way is the way we think about things. Mm -hmm. um, and the other half of it is this is a whole brand new world about how to reach out to people. Yep. And you, you need the legal stuff. You need the uh, technology. You need yep. to understand how to use the technology with the yes. legal legal stuff but but the beauty is if you just think about it long enough with smart enough people you can get to solutions that are unique and innovative and not difficult and that's the challenge mm -hmm. and that's the win right i'll give you one example and so one of the things a lot of people may not realize is that when you listen to someone do a cover song mm -hmm. in a club uh that club should be paying royalties to ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, sure. the three big mm -hmm. performing rights organizations. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that someone wrote that song, and they deserve to have their uh, intellectual property protected, mm -hmm. right? So some of the money you pay for cover, whatever, goes to, to the owners, the publishers yes. uh, of that music. And when you listen to a song on the radio, there's another fee that's, that has been paid called the mechanical royalty, Yes, right? And most of the songs that are out there that are being written can be re-recorded by just about anybody because of the way the regulations have been set up to permit that. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing because those mechanical royalties, a piece of it goes to uh, the, the, the publishers, or the people mm -hmm. who manage the copyright and intellectual property. But if you were to videotape yourself mm -hmm. playing a cover and you put it up on your own website, you are breaking the law. Uh -huh. Because what you need to do is you need to negotiate something called the synchronization rights between video and audio, the sync rights. Mm -hmm. And you have to do that negotiation with the holder of the, pu of the public publishing rights and the holder of those of most of the songs you listen to on the radio. The owner of those or the manager of those is like Sony, mm -hmm. right? Universal. These, yep. are, you know, these are people you walk into their creative section and it's 80% lawyers <laughs> and they're not being paid minimum wage right um so if you want to just for one particular s video that you do of someone else's song mm -hmm. you may be paying thousands and thousands of dollars sure. you do do a whole show mm -hmm. right 10 songs that's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars you really ought to be paying if you're going to videotape it and put it on your own website now google gets around it you can put it up on google uh, on youtube excuse me because google has negotiated something with mm -hmm. the publishers where they can get a piece of ad revenue, mm -hmm. right? And you have to agree to that as the user of YouTube to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and they sort of monitor all this stuff through automated means. You know, if, you, if yeah. you put up someone else's content up there, they can identify it with something called the content ID. Yeah. And um, now I say all this because what I just gave you was a mini lesson in things that many musicians don't know anything about. Right. And if you think about yourself as a musician performing some of your music and some music of other people and you want mm -hmm. to answer the question how can i get a worldwide audience mm -hmm. you have to walk through this door yeah. you have to walk through the door of synchronization rights how do you do that well that's complicated mm -hmm. uh there are ways to do that by partnering with an organization that uh, has a channel will do the marketing for you you can put the the your video content up and all of the aggregated content can yield enough eyeballs that Google will say we're now going to give you give you as the channel owner more revenue because you have you're bringing a bigger audience to mm -hmm. us. Well, that's good. 
if you try to do it hit, hit or miss as individual musicians, you may never get your audience size sufficient enough to get that ad, new ad rate, mm-hmm. the new ad share. Um, so working with a nonprofit is sort of ideal because we're not in it to, to make a ton of money. We're mm-hmm. interested in paying for our, our platform so that we can help you get your music, your video content mm-hmm. that um, maybe may belong to someone else up on a channel. So this is a solution that is essentially back office and legal and compliant da, 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 mm-hmm. that you don't have to worry about. Number one. Number two, and this is where the real win-win comes in. And this really fits with Portland. What if you're a musician and you understand that getting sync rights for other people's music is a pain, but getting sync rights for your own darn music is ridiculously, stupidly easy. Hmm. You want to get a national brand? Write more music. (laughs) And if Portland stands for anything, it stands for creativity. Yep. So now you look at this in, look at this in the context of what I'm facing. I'm confronted with an organization that has a venue and a store and a school. Mm -hmm. But what if the venue, the store, and the school can bring people into this conversation about why it's important to develop your songwriting skills Mm -hmm. into a community where other songwriters are are writing great songs and you listen and get inspired by them, where once you get your music to a certain level, your own songs to a certain level, you have a way to produce them here, Mm -hmm. right, in our venue, and get them out to the world on our platform. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be our platform, frankly, but there are benefits to doing it as a one-stop shop. Yeah. Then what we essentially have done is we've realigned what we've got here mm-hmm. to create a platform that is a, as much as possible a one-stop shop for the most creative people in Portland to put their stuff out to the world. Um, and, and this is exactly what we're doing here. We're using this mm-hmm. asset mm-hmm. to get our words out to the world. Yep. Right? You go into the store. Uh, we don't want this to be Guitar Center where you come in and say, I like yeah. that guitar. I yeah. see you have it for $300. I'll give you 250 Right? Yeah. So, no, yeah. it's $300. Well, okay. All right. But your big success when you leave the store at Guitar Center is, I really gypped them, didn't I? I really underpaid for this guitar. Well, that's not the transaction we want. Mm-hmm. We want people to come in and get a guitar that maybe they could get a guitar center for $300 and maybe we sell it for 325 but you can get a $50 certificate towards a lesson, mm-hmm. right? Because what good is that guitar by itself? The guitar by itself is not gonna make you a better player. Mm-hmm. You wanna be a better player, come on in and join our community. So there we integrate the store experience with the school experience mm-hmm. and the message along the way is, create mm-hmm. don't just save a nickel create but get in this community and create and when you create we'll help you get this stuff out to mm-hmm. the to the world so that we can show portland's music mm-hmm. to the world and, and communicate to the world that not only is this music great but um that portland's a great place to do music mm-hmm. right? come to portland listen to the music yeah sorry the, the bit so the long answer to your question what about my business background mm-hmm. informs the way I think about artichoke? It comes down to creating a human impact for musicians and audiences just by taking what we already have, mm-hmm. making small adjustments, and making sure that we communicate those and the benefits to the people who matter to us, who are the audience members, mm-hmm. the venue owners, 
uh, grant makers, sponsors, donors, but especially the musicians who I hope will walk into this place and say, these people understand my world, maybe even in some ways better than I do, mm -hmm. and I feel safe here. I feel like I can find my people here. I feel like I can get my stuff done here. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to do. And all my business experience, if it doesn't serve that, then I got to find someone else who can help me do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I'm not here to be a businessman. I'm here to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. Well. That's a lot. Sorry. Ken. That's a lot. No, <laughs> no. I mean, that's, that's why we're here. You know? I, I can tell you something else I'm inspired about. And this goes back to my point about most of the challenge that we face is a change in mindset. Mm -hmm. um, there are, you've done this before, and I've done this before, concerts in our, in our, our yards, our homes, right? Mm -hmm. So we've done this, my wife and I have done this several times. And the most recent time, I put some flyers out in the neighborhood saying, hey, we're going to be making noise. Mm -hmm. Please stop on by if you want. But just, just to be alerted, we're, we're going we're gonna to make some noise. And I think I think the last time it was Randy Porter, Ross Garlow, and Christopher Brown. <laughs> right? So it was a, a good group. Oh, yeah. And um, people showed up. Neighbors mm -hmm. showed up. Mm -hmm. The guys made bank. Mm. And... It drove home for me the following hypothesis that needs to be answered, and I think I have the answer. There are people who will show up in my yard to listen to jazz who will never go to a jazz club. Yeah. And I'm going to guess that across Portland, 90% of the economic value for people listening to jazz, people who want to listen to jazz. Uh, is being lost hmm. because there aren't more shows in backyards. Hmm. There are people who just aren't going to come to the clubs. And the clubs who are struggling to find people to come sit in the club and buy stuff may be surrounded by homes that just need to be gently encouraged to come into the club. Hmm. So one of the, th one of the, obs and as also the other obs observation is uh, every week, every Sunday, there is a, a huge amount of music being uh, performed yeah in this town and on saturdays and on fridays you know depending upon what faith you follow yes there's a huge amount of interest in music people want this this music want music in their lives so here we have non-club related musical activities mm -hmm. that could represent a order of magnitude more economic value so what can artichoke do mm -hmm. to unleash that i'm going to leave that where it is but it is a it is a mindset change. Mm -hmm. Instead of thinking about this music industry in Portland as a place of scarcity, mm -hmm. we need to think of this place as a place of potential engagement with huge audiences that right now aren't going to the clubs. Yeah. How do we solve that problem? Is it an issue of getting them into the clubs or is it an issue of bringing the music to them in a way that is so ridiculously easy that, uh, that they'll do it? Mm-hmm. And even if you're only marginally successful with 90% of that economic value is un, it, you can't tap. Well, let's tap 10 or 15% of it and you've already doubled the economic value that's being generated in the music industry. Yeah. So I'm looking for that. And can Artichoke help? Absolutely. But I think this is the kind of stuff where 
venue operators, other nonprofits, and so mm -hmm. on, get together and have a conversation about how can we do this together. Mm -hmm. So that's what I want to do. And that's, I'm going to leave that. All right. Last comment. Well, you've bitten off a lot. <laughs> Most of it's small adjustments. Most of it's small okay. adjustments. It sounds like a lot. <laughs> I think it will be busy, yeah. but, you know, yeah. we'll yeah. have volunteers and well, we have volunteers. That's why people work, because it's fun. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, it's rewarding. The, m most of what I'm talking about here is getting digital assets out to the world. Yeah. We do this on a regular basis oh, every yeah. darn week yep. already. Yep. So it's small adjustments, just yeah. repositioning and a little bit. That's of what we did. I, I came to the conclusion a few years ago that before the pandemic, uh, that people don't really want to read about music anymore. I'm pretty much convinced of that. Interesting. And that's why we 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 pretty much changed to a to a audio and video. You know, I mean, we've, we've got two podcasts running. There's going to be another one starting up, uh, and um, lots and lots of photographers. We're we're almost back. We're we're nearly back to the to the number of photographers we had before the pandemic. Well, that's great. They're out there. They're shooting. Uh, and uh, now that I'm getting better from my own problems, uh, you know, I can get back out there also. And so well, we're thrilled to have you back here. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Thrilled. Oh, and yeah. and oh, we're looking forward to the uh, 13th anniversary. Is that what it is? 13th anniversary. Yeah. 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 We yeah. set up a date. You're going to have a party with music. That's and great. Right here at Artichoke Music. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and you know, I got to say, uh, you know, just to tell you, during the our first fundraiser mm -hmm. for Saramon House. We did it at Billy Edson's house. We had um, Christopher Brown Quartet, Shelley mm -hmm. Rudolph, mm -hmm. and uh, we did the Shelley and Tom show. Nice. Yeah. Um, nice. It was a wonderful fundraiser. Mm -hmm. um, and we we're trying to figure out ways to promote it. And um, Louis Payne's wife, Tracy, mm -hmm. said, you got to talk to Tom D'Antoni. I said, who is Tom D'Antoni? Who is that guy? You don't know who Tom D'Antoni is? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, it's one of those things where, you know, just start pulling that thread, and I realized yeah. that you are you are part of the fabric of this great town. Your thread is, is, is a golden thread in this well, town. Oh, I man, it's the magazine that refuses to die. <laughs> oh, I, you t let's just brainstorm how to make sure that there's lots of oxygen that we can send your way so that everything is... I'm for that. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing is we got to get a new editor-in-chief. Oh, yeah? Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> Somebody who's a little younger. I don't want to stop doing anything I'm doing, but we need a little, uh, little, little juice going on right now. And uh, But... Uh, who knows? Well, let's Who put knows? this out there then. Let's uh, see if we can get an editor in chief for you that, that's got the interest and a in new publisher. Skills. It's fine, you know. I mean, uh, we're 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 up for that, you know. Um, but anyway, that's that's something we can talk about when we're not rolling. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are always problems to solve, and I love throwing my weight. Well, that's me. great. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. All right, so we're going to end this the way we always end this by saying. That's entertainment. <laughs> Thank you, Tom.